Good morning, church. Uh, We'll be turning to God's word now, so please grab your Bibles. Uh, We are going to be in 1 Corinthians 15. If you don't have a Bible with you and you would like one, please just raise your hand and one of the ushers on the side will bring you a copy. And if you don't own a copy of the Bible, please keep the ones you get. They are our gift to you. Again, we will be in 1 Corinthians 15. If you're using one of the church Bibles, that's found on page 903. 1 Corinthians 15, we will read the first 28 verses. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 28. This is what Holy Scripture says. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, then to the 12, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God Uh, misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive but each in his own order. Christ, the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. 
the last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I invite you to pray with me once again. Heavenly Father, we come to your word now with our hearts and minds from different places, with different struggles and different life stages. But Lord, we need to hear from you. And Father, I am but a man and I've sought to faithfully prepare. But we want to hear from you, not from me. So, oh God, we pray even now that you would prepare your message for our hearts and that you would prepare our hearts for your message. Would you speak to us for your glory and praise, we pray. Amen. So, uh, we all tend to like stories and movies about the underdog. See, an underdog is someone who, by all appearances, belongs in the loser category. Typically, they aren't the strongest or smartest or fastest or richest among the bunch. They usually have this understated nature about them, and when you compare them to others, everyone is thinking the same thing. They've got no chance. And yet, there's something inspiring about the underdog who succeeds against all odds, right? We pay to see those movies. This is not an underdog story. At least, not, not exactly. I mean, it's true as Christians, when we think about the three main enemies we battle against, our sin, death, and the devil and his influence, we are definitely the underdogs. By ourselves, we belong in the loser category. And when we think about the all-star team that we are up against, everyone thinks the same thing. No chance. But like I said, this is not an underdog story. For at least two reasons. See, because there's no training montage on earth that will somehow help us to get the victory over our enemies by ourselves. But more importantly because we are not the main character of this story. See, we are more like one of the background characters in a disaster movie that's been crushed by a rubble of a fallen building. We need saving. So then, as we prepare our hearts to reflect on Easter and the cosmic consequences of what the cross has accomplished for Christians, we want to consider over the next two Sundays Christ, the victor. We will see how through his death, resurrection, and ascension, Jesus Christ has secured victory for us over sin, death, and the devil and his influence. The inspiring turnaround here isn't from us underdogs, it's from Christ, the victor, who takes us from little more than losers 
to truly more than conquerors. So for today, we find ourselves in 1 Corinthians 15, one of the texts that teaches us on the resurrection. But rather than turn into the triumphant end of the chapter that you might be familiar with, we will focus our attention on verses 12 to 26. In this passage, the Apostle Paul is responding to a view that could have possibly been gaining traction in the Corinthian church and needed to be addressed. Look with me at verse 12. He says, Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? This is what begins the conversation that runs through the rest of the chapter. Now, you might be here and you're wondering, what does that have to do with me? Well, everything, as I hope we will soon see. As our society grows more sophisticated, there is mountain pressure to make the gospel and its implications more sophisticated, too. We can keep the teachings that promote good morality and family values, well, maybe just the morality part, and do away with the other bits that we don't like. And like the idea of sin, resurrection can be one of those bits. Similar to the Corinthian church, there are people today who would claim the title of Christian, profess faith in Jesus, and yet discard the notion of Jesus rising from the dead. But during this Easter season, I want us to let the Apostle Paul remind us of the importance of the resurrection. I hope what we will see from our text today is that Jesus is the first man standing, and his resurrection is the substance of our faith, the seal of our hope, and the sign of his victory and ours. Okay, with that being said, then let's turn to the text and see, firstly, that the resurrection of Christ is the substance of our faith. The idea that some would say there is no resurrection from the dead is surprising to the Apostle Paul. How can some of you say this, he says in verse 12. He is surprised because he wonders if they had th truly thought through what they were saying. In fact, verses 12 to 19 is the Apostle unraveling their statement and taking it to its logical conclusion. In verses 3 to 11, which we read during the scripture reading, he has just rehearsed the gospel to them. He has grounded the work of Christ in history and prophecy. He writes in verses 3 to 6, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised from on the third day in accordance to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Paul, I mean Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. This is a simple summary of the gospel. This is what happened, he says. It happened. Christ died, not metaphorically dead, not swooning dead. No, he was dead, dead. But he wasn't just dead, he was also buried. 
Then on the third day, he was raised from the dead. Again, that's not a figure of speech. He was like literally walking around and stuff. There are like 500 witnesses to this. You can go verify it. This is legit, he says. But this isn't just historical. It happened according to the scriptures. For example, David writes in Psalm 16, he says, I have set Yahweh always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. But the truth is, David died and he stayed dead. But he was writing prophetically about the greater David, Jesus Christ, because he is the holy one that did not see corruption and was raised from the dead. God kept his word by raising Jesus from the dead, just like he said he would. This is the message that was preached to the Corinthians, and by the grace of God, they believed it. Paul goes as far to say in verse 1 that this is the message through which they stand and are saved. So what happens if you take out the resurrection from this picture? It's just a little tweak, you know, what's the big deal? Well, if you say there's no resurrection, then you're saying Jesus was not raised from the dead. Because as we will see later, his resurrection and that of believers are inseparately tied. So to deny one is to deny the other. It's a little like me telling my wife, I don't like cheese. Except on pizza and in burgers. Or I don't like chocolate. Except chocolate covered biscuits and cookies. At some point she has to call out my inconsistency. You might have noticed that verses 13 and 14 and verses 16 and 17 mirror each other. Paul is getting at the same thing, but just using different words. And at the center of of these mirroring verses is verse 15 and the question of whether God has proven himself faithful to his word or whether those who preach a risen savior have proven to be unfaithful to God's word. The Apostle Paul writes in verse 15, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. But then God himself had promised to deal with our sins and he showed that he would do this by giving the one for all, once for all. For example, we read in Isaiah 53, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and Yahweh has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Friends, the God of the Bible will have nothing to do with blind faith. Why do you think he gave us the Bible in the first place? We learned a few weeks ago from one of our our guest preachers that God declares what he will do. He does it and then he proclaims what he has done. Death is a result 
of sin, and all sin must be paid for. So in order to prove that Jesus paid for our sins and not for his, he had to be raised from the dead. Otherwise, who's to say he didn't just die for his own sins like everyone else does? But to say no resurrection is to say Christ was not raised. And if Christ was not raised, then there are absolutely zero grounds to believe that we can be made right with God. Your faith would be useless. It would be like waiting in line to board a first-class flight to wherever you want, Miami or somewhere nicer, I guess, only to get to the front of the queue and give the attendants an old TTC token and think you're getting on board the flight. Your token faith is getting you nowhere. You have to take your packed bags where you came from. But worse yet, like Paul says in verses 18 to 19, we have believed a pie-in-the-sky story if the dead are not raised. Jesus himself said that he would rise from the dead. So if he didn't, then there's no reason to believe anything else that he said or taught. Those who died believing in him would be lost, either to annihilation or to hell, and we ought to be living our best lives now rather than waiting for a futile future. If this was the case, I'd rather try my luck using my OTTC token to get to the STC than believe it will get me on board a first-class flight. The resurrection of Christ is the substance of our faith because it is fulfilled prophecy rooted in history and proof that he indeed paid for our sins, making us right with God. You cannot deny the substance of your faith and still attempt to hold on to its structure. You can call that whatever you want, but that is not the Christian faith. But on the flip side, the resurrection of Christ being the substance of your faith means that your faith, O oh Christian, is based on an objective truth, an objective reality, not your subjective experience. What I mean is this, how well you perform today or tomorrow does not determine whether or not Christ died. You're still called to bear fruit in keeping with repentance, that's true, but that is the result of your salvation, never the reason for it. Writing about the faith through which Abraham was justified, Paul writes in Romans 4 that the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. He was delivered up, as in he died, for our sins and was raised for our justification to make us right with God. Jesus rising from the dead means you already have victory over your sin. You might still endure its presence now, but its power and penalty have been done away with. 
Don't give in to whatever temptation comes your way thinking you have no choice. You can resist sin now, not as the underdog, but as one who is already a victor in and through Jesus. Let that motivate you when you stare down your sin that easily trips you up. You are not a slave to sin anymore, Christian. You are free. The resurrection of Christ is the substance of our faith, but it is also the seal of our hope. Now, this might be a weird illustration to use in a sermon about the resurrection, but I have watched my share of zombie movies over the years. More often than not, in these movies, the zombies are usually created by a virus of some kind that kills people and then turns them into the walking dead. And their bodies might be moving, but they're not really back from the dead. And in these stories, there's usually an effort to synthesize some sort of serum, a cure that would save humanity from its dark fate. I've been watching a lot of movies. Now imagine with me that there is a scientist with a potential serum. But to know that the serum works, you first have to test it, right? But in order to test if the serum works, the subject first needs to be in contact with the virus. So the one offering the serum takes it upon himself to be the test subject. He exposes himself to the virus that he was previously safe from, and then he administers the serum to himself. As humanity watches the virus run its course, everyone waits with bated breath to see whether the serum will work or whether he will end up dead just like everyone else. So they wait. And they wait until he finally takes a breath. Do you know what his breath means? It signals that there is hope for humanity. Because the serum works, he will not be the last man standing, but the first man standing, as it were, because coursing through his veins is the victory over the virus, and his life guarantees that others can and will be saved as well. The reality is we are all infected with sin. And its outcome is certain death. So if there's no living proof that death does not have the final say, then it means that sin still reigns. But, verse 20 marks a turning point where the Apostle Paul goes from addressing the negative results if the resurrection was not true to affirming the positive results since the resurrection is true. He says in verse 20, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. He calls Christ first fruits in verse 20, and then he does it again in verse 23. Even those who aren't farmers here, which I imagine is most of us, uh, we can probably guess what first fruits means. See, it's an agricultural term, which means the first harvest of the season, but it was also used often as a metaphor to mean the first of more to come, a foretaste of what is ahead. 
Paul refers to Jesus Christ here as first fruits because his resurrection is a foretaste and guarantee of what is to come for those who are in him. He is not the last, but the first man standing. But how can the Apostle Paul say this so confidently? Why does Jesus' resurrection mean that we also will be resurrected? In Romans 8, he says that if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. See, because as Christians, we have the same spirit of God that raised Christ from the dead, his resurrection guarantees ours. That's why Paul goes on to say in the same chapter that we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit grown inwardly as we eagerly wait for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Both Jesus and the Holy Spirit are referred to as the first fruits, the seal or guarantee of our hope. But there's something else going on in our passage. Did you notice it in verses 21 to 22? He says, For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. The certainty of our resurrection and the seal of our hope is based on the analogy Paul draws between Adam and Christ. What Paul describes here is like that novel, A Tale of Two Men. Wait, that's not the title, is it? But actually, you could read Charles Dickens' opening words and almost picture what Paul is saying here. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. We had everything before us. We had nothing before us. We were all going direct to heaven. We were all going direct the other way. Maybe Charles Dickens had read this. See, what Paul is describing here is an idea he goes on to further develop in the rest of the chapter. The point he is making is that Jesus Christ is another Adam, a better Adam than Adam was. See, we're told in Genesis 1 and 2 that Adam was the first human being made from the dust of the earth by God in his own image and given authority and dominion over the rest of creation. And Adam served as the representative, the federal head, as it were, of all of creation. This is why when him and his wife Eve sinned against God by disobeying him, not only did they bring a curse upon themselves, but as the representative of all of creation, Adam's sin brought a curse upon the rest of creation too. And the curse brought about 
by sin is death. So for Adam and all that he represents, this death sentence is an effect. This is why Paul says that by a man came death and that in Adam all die because we are all in Adam by our very nature. But then he goes on to contrast Adam with Christ. He sets up Christ as the new representative, the federal head, as it were, of a different creation, a new creation. But unlike Adam, under whose representation we are all born into, Jesus Christ's representation is only for those who are connected to him, which Paul calls being in Christ or belonging to him. This is why he can write to the second letter of the Corinthians that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. A commentator summarizes this idea by simply saying that humans are in Adam by nature, in Christ by faith. Just as death is a certainty for all those connected to Adam, which is all humanity, likewise, resurrection and new life is a certainty for all those connected to Jesus, all those who are in him and belong to him by faith. Like the man with the serum to the virus running through his veins, even though his life guarantees victory over the virus, only those who are connected can gain access and taste the victory. So the question is, friend, are you in Christ? Do you belong to him? See, we're all ravaged by the virus that is sin, the disobedience to God and disregard of his will. Death is a consequence of our sin. And people have different responses to death. Some live in fear of it. Others welcome it as an escape from the harsh realities of life. And others don't care either way. They see it as a step into nothingness. But listen, the Bible says differently. What awaits after death is not an escape. It's not nothingness. It is judgment. And those who die in their sins will still have an eternal debt to pay. None of us can pay that. But the gospel, friends, the gospel is good news. As we have seen, Jesus' death paid for sins and his resurrection proves that the payment cleared. Death is certain, but his resurrection is the seal of our hope, the guarantee that we will likewise be raised to new life in him. But this only applies to those who are in him, to those who confess that they can't save themselves, to those who put their trust in Jesus. If this isn't you, please consider today the urgency of this decision. Turn to Christ. Put your trust in him. See, he is the first man standing. His resurrection is the substance of our faith. It's the seal of our hope. But the last thing I want us to see from our text today is that the resurrection of Christ is the sign of his victory 
and ours. As we get towards the end of the passage, Paul provides us with the context for what he has been teaching about. See, even though Jesus is the first man standing and his resurrection guarantees ours, the reality is that his resurrection was over 2,000 years ago. And last I checked, I haven't seen any dead Christians walking around. Not even the Apostle Paul who wrote this himself. Jesus rose from the dead, but people still die. Christians still die. So what are we to make of this? Well, even though the Bible teaches that believers experience spiritual new life now, our physical new life is still to come. And the context of the resurrection, the when, is given to us in our text. Look with me at verses 23 to 24. He says, But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. This passage gives us two temporal markers introduced by the word then. Simply put, friends, Jesus is coming back. The bodily resurrection and return of Jesus Christ is the confession of the Christian church. For example, it's why we take the Lord's Supper. We proclaim his death until he returns. We long for his return. And when he does, we are told that two things happen. Believers who are dead will receive life, and then comes the end. See, his resurrection is the sign of his victory because it proves that he has accomplished the work he began and his ascension into heaven marked his exaltation at the right hand of God the Father. We are told this, for example, in Philippians 2, that because of what Jesus accomplished on the cross, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. His resurrection and ascension into heaven affirms that he is indeed the King of kings and Lord of lords. And under his reign, every form of power or authority that tries to go against his will will be done away with. Paul puts it this way in verse 25 of our text. He says, he must reign until he, put, he has put all enemies under his feet. This period that we live in between his first and second coming is a period of reconciling all things under the rule of Christ. His resurrection has implications for everyone because it signals what the Bible calls the last days, the approaching climax of God's story of salvation. And when Jesus returns, it means that God's plan for all of history has reached its fulfillment. And trust me, you don't want to wait until then before you turn to him. Back in Genesis... 
God created all things and declared that it was very good. But since then, because of sin, what was once very good has become broken and subject to death. In fact, the Apostle Paul says in Romans 5 that ever since Adam, death has been reigning in the world. But like we saw, Jesus' resurrection is a sign of his victory. And this period, until he returns, will last until every enemy is defeated. And we read in verse 26, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. His victory over death is obvious because he rose from the dead. But his resurrection is not just his victory, it's ours also. Because as the first man standing, his resurrection guarantees ours. Do you know what this means, Christian? It means you don't need to live in the fear of death. In fact, Hebrews 2 tells us that Jesus came to deliver us from the fear of death. Death might seem like a permanent thing now, but for the Christian, it is not a full stop. I think you guys call that a period. It is not a period. It is like a semicolon. If, yeah. A writer makes a joyful observation of Paul's choice of words and says this. He says, death precedes resurrection. And using the figure of speech of sleep for death, implies that it is not a permanent condition, but one of waiting. Waiting. Friends, death's defeat is already determined. Our victory is already assured. When Jesus Christ returns and deals the death blow to death, God's plan of salvation will reach its climax. Like our call to worship passage from Isaiah 25 says, he will swallow up death forever. Revelation 20 tells us that death dies. No wonder the Apostle Paul tells believers not to grieve like the rest who have no hope. He says in 1 Thessalonians 4, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Do you see how freeing this is? It frees us from the need to squeeze out every ounce of pleasure we can out of this world before we are satisfied. We don't need to live our best lives now. Because we have an eternity with God, and like the psalmist says, at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. It frees us from the fear of man that paralyzes us from sharing the gospel, because the worst they can do is kill the body, not the soul. And whether we are awake or asleep, we can be confident that we will live with our Lord Christ, the victor, has won victory for us underdogs. So what of your sin? It is fully paid for. So what of death? It's, uh, it's rendered temporary. And what of the devil who wields both to our woe? That's a question for next week that James will answer. But I hope you can already guess what the answer is. 
Friends, we have been thinking about this this morning, but it's nothing new for the believer. I'm not calling us to believe anything that those in Christ don't already profess. Jesus is the first man standing, and because he lives, so will we. The resurrection of Christ is the substance of our faith. Without it, you are still in your sins, and your token faith is useless. But because of it, you are made right in God's eyes. The resurrection of Christ is the seal of our hope. Life beyond death is as certain as death itself because Jesus is alive. See, gravestones and obituaries might read from so-and-so date to so-and-so date, but life is not the parenthesis for the believer's existence. Death is. And the resurrection of Christ is the sign and victory is sign of his victory and ours. The end is already set in motion. He will do away with every power and authority that seeks to undermine his, and God's plan for human history will be fulfilled. Christians, this is our faith. This is our hope. This is our victory. Let us continue to stand in it. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, what thanks can we render to, to you in return for all that you have done for us in Jesus? Through your one and only Son whom you gave for us, we have access to your throne. You have done away with our sin. You have assured us victory over death. And you have given us a hope for a future with you that we will live forever, free from sin once and for all, free from death and its oppression. Oh God, we thank you for this hope. Father, we pray for those who don't know you, who still live under the reign of sin and death. Oh God, would you be merciful to them? Open their eyes to see their need for a savior. Father, please help us to cling tightly to this faith that we have, not to stray from the left or to the right, but to stick closely to what you have revealed in your word, for you have accomplished your prophecies in history for your glory. Help us to trust this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.